Good morning. It's great to see everyone this morning. Um, for those of you who are visiting, I am not Pastor Sean. Uh, something came up. He could not be here today. So I have been ordained by this church, and uh, but I'm not Pastor Sean. Um, so hopefully you aren't too disappointed. But, um, if you will, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. First Timothy chapter 3, we'll be looking at verse 1 through 7. So we'll read the passage and then I'll pray. Um, I have looked through a lot of translations and every translation kind of gets this word and that word. So I've kind of wrote out, um, I guess you can say a translation, that gets as close as I can to the Greek, the original language. So that's what I'll be reading this morning. So 1 Timothy 3, starting in verse 1, it reads, This is a faithful saying. If anyone aspires to be an elder, he desires a good work. The elder, therefore, must be blameless, a one-woman man, sober, self-controlled, orderly, a lover of strangers, skilled in teaching, not known to be alongside alcohol, not violent, fair-minded, peaceable, not a lover of money, one who stands before his own house well, with his children in submission with all gravity. But if one does not know how to stand before his own house, how will he care for the house of God? Not a new convert, that he should not become prideful and fall into the judgment of the devil. He must also have a good testimony from those outside, so that he might not fall into disgrace and the snare of the devil. Let's pray. Father God, Father, you have a high standard for your people. You have said, be holy, for I am holy. Jesus has said, we are to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Father, that is my desire. I know that is the desire of many in this building today. I pray that you would use this sermon to fulfill that desire in many to conform them to the image of Jesus Christ, which this passage essentially lays out for us. I pray that those in here, they may want to be a more moral person, but they reject Christ. I pray, Father, that they would see that they have no hope. 
but price. Even if they did turn over a new leaf, as it were, and stop doing this and start doing these things, that would not save them from hell. It's Christ and Christ alone. Because Christ is the only one who truly kept all of these absolutely perfectly. Laid down his life, suffering the wrath for all of us who fall short of this standard. Nevertheless, this is the standard. So by your spirit and by your power, might you fulfill it. And would you help me, Father? Might I decrease that you may increase? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So today I would like to talk about the moral standard at the local church. If some of you remember, um, probably a few months ago I began a series on the local church, which I talked about the desperate commitment to the local church, and it, um, the Lord has led me to continue and speak of the moral standard of the local church. Now you might look at this passage and you say, well, this is talking to elders. This talks to church leaders. What does it have to do with me? Well, as we go through scripture, we find Paul, who is a pastor, who is a church leader. He tells the Corinthians church twice. In chapter 4, he says, You're my beloved children. Imitate me. Chapter 11, imitate me as I imitate Christ. To the Philippians, he writes, Brethren, join me in following my example. Note those who so walk, because in us, you have a pattern. Okay, Peter, when speaking to the elders, he says, Elders, shepherd the flock of God among you, acting as overseers, not grudgingly, but willfully, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but as examples to the flock. So why is the standard so high for elders? Why is the standard so high for church leaders? That's because that's what each and every one of us is supposed to be. So that's my prayer this morning, that the Lord would use this sermon and he would form Christ in us, make us more like Christ, who ultimately embodied every single one of these more than anyone ever has or ever will. So with that being said, let's go through it one verse at a time. So it begins, this is a faithful saying. If anyone aspires to be an elder, he desires a good work. You know, it's very, it seems in this culture, especially today, that's where this passage stops for most people. And they'll say, hey, you desire to be a pastor? Okay, let's make it happen. But that's not where our Lord would have the Apostle Paul stop. He continues. He says, the elder, therefore, must be blameless. So first of all, the word must is there. It's the Greek word day. It's the same word used when it says, Jesus says, the Son of Man must be delivered up. 
This is a word, it's non-negotiable. This must be the character of the pastor, of the elder, of the leader. You say, why? Why must it be this way? I mean, how come we can't just get someone who's like, yeah, I desire to be that way. Why must he be that way? He must be that way because, as I've already said, he's an example for us. And there is a real sense that the flock, the church, is not going to rise any higher than the level of holiness they see in their elder. So he must be blameless. So this is kind of the overarching test of the rest of the 14 things listed. It's saying, how is he to be blameless? Well, in all of these different categories. But he must be blameless. You're like, is that possible? Well, it is possible in the power of the Holy Spirit. As we go through scripture, we get as early as Genesis 6, statement made about Noah. He's a blameless man, perfect in his generations. He walks with God. Job, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. We met Zachariah and Elizabeth, John the Baptist's parents. It says, this is a righteous couple, continuing in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. Paul the Apostle in Philippians. Now, of course, he's speaking of his self-righteousness. But he says, according to righteousness, which by the law, blameless. So this word blameless, what does it mean? Does it mean sinless? Not at all. What this word literally means is that when you are examined by rather it's your friends or your enemies, when you are examined, thoroughly examined, there is not, nothing that they can say, okay, he's living in this sin unrepentantly. There's no pattern of sin in your life that they can blame you for. Of course, yes, we sin, but we should repent immediately. We should seek the Lord. We should take a hold of him, receive the forgiveness of Christ, and let that compel us to a greater life of holiness. Nevertheless, we must be blameless. You say, I don't think that's possible. You know, I, I once... Uh, heard a story about Charles Spurgeon. There was this other minister, and he's been preaching and preaching and preaching, and he came to Spurgeon. This complaint was that he's been preaching for years, and no one's getting saved in this church. No one's getting baptized. So he's complaining to Spurgeon. And Spurgeon says, you don't expect someone to get saved every time you preach, do you? He said, no. And Spurgeon said, according to your faith, let it be done to you. So it's the same thing here. The Bible, the Lord, requires blamelessness. He doesn't require something that isn't possible by his spirit. So I just encourage you, believe that. Believe that he can make you blameless, and according to your faith, let it be done to you. So with that being said, let's look at these one at a time. He gives us 14 ways this blamelessness works out. How we can test 
the elder tests the church leader for a blameless life. The first we see here, many of your translations, pretty much all translations, say the husband of one wife. Okay, there's a reason that I, I, I put a one woman man. Okay, the Greek is actually mias gunikas andros. You're like, what does that mean? Mias comes from one. Gunikas can mean wife. It could mean woman. Andros could be man or husband, depending on the context. Now, if it was a husband of one wife, that makes it a status requirement. These are moral requirements. Just consider this. Paul writes this uh, letter to Timothy. And Timothy reads it to examine himself. It's like, okay, I've examined myself. I, I know what to look for to appoint elders. And he, he writes back to Paul, and it's like, Paul, but if it's a husband of one wife, Paul, you're a pastor, but you're not married. Well, I, I don't think Paul was, is requiring anything that he is not. So this, a one-woman man, what does that mean? It's one who is committed to God's ordinance of a one man, one woman for a lifetime in a marriage relationship. Okay, that's mentally, that's in your speech, that this elder, this leader is to be known as a one who is committed to God's ordination of a relationship. No sexual relationships before, outside, only committed to what God has laid out in Scripture, even in his mind, because we know Jesus says, if you look at a woman with lust for her, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. There's many Scriptures about how you speak. So what comes out of our mouth what enters our mind and how we conduct ourselves. Rather, we are married, rather we aren't married. We should be committed to how the Lord has ordained. Jesus said, from the beginning, he made them male and female. We should be committed to that. And not just the elder, as I've said. He should be an example to us, but each and every one of us, male or female, young or old, married or not, we should be committed to this. Next, he says sober. Many translations use the word temperate. Okay, this word literally means wineless or um, uninfluenced, not intoxicated by this world. Okay, he has a mind that is free from all of these ungodly influences. When he makes a decision, the only influences there are the Word of God and the Spirit of God. So this man is in his Word. He gives himself to the Word of God, that he thinks according to the Word of God. We see in Scripture constantly. In the book of Ephesians, he's like, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Romans, be renewed in your mind. Colossians, Set your mind on things above. Romans, again, he says, those who walk by the Spirit, set the mind on the things of the Spirit. So this man's mind is captivated by the Word of God. And 
Uh, Psalm chapter 1. We see, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. How? His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He'll be like a tree planted by rivers of water, bearing fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither, and everything he does will prosper. He will be spiritually prosperous in everything. Why? Because his mind is saturated in the word of God. And that is what's required of all of us. Amen. Next it says he is to be self-controlled. Okay? Some translations say good behavior. Some say respectable. This word means to be controlled by the inner man. Okay, this man isn't just going after everything his flesh desires. Okay, Helps Word Studies actually tells us that this word is where our English word for diaphragm comes from. So just as the diaphragm regulates your breathing, which really regulates everything else, you can tell if there's a problem with the diaphragm just by watching them. You're going to see Results of that in their life. And in the same way, okay, this man's inner spiritual diaphragm, you can say, it's evident. Because he is a self-controlled man. He isn't going after this and that and whatever his flesh desires. He isn't in love with this world like John tells us. Do not love this world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of God is not in him. For all that is in this world, the lust of the flesh, what makes me feel good? The lust of the eyes? Oh, I desire that. I need that. God forbids it, so what? The pride of life. Oh, it's all about me. So, this man here, is in, in love with the world. He isn't chasing up all of that. He's the man that Paul prays for in Ephesians chapter 3 when he says, I want you to be strengthened in the inner man by the Holy Spirit, that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love might have the mind to comprehend with all the saints what is the length, width, depth, and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge and be filled with all of the fullness of God. This is this man. It says he is to be orderly. This man is to have his life in order, his spiritual ducts in a row, so to speak. He knows what to prioritize. His day isn't all out of order. He is prioritized according to the word of God. He knows the word of God says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He knows that he is to set his mind on things above, not on things of this earth. He is to seek those things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. That takes priority over all. And in everything he does, that's the priority. It's not seek first as the first in the list. It's seek first as in it is the greatest, the most important, the most significant that saturates everything I do. It's like in the Gospels when they come to Jesus and say, which is the first commandment? Jesus doesn't say, oh, that one's easy. 
You shall not, you shall have no other gods before me. That's not what Jesus says. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the first commandment. And he adds what? First and greatest commandment. So this man prioritizes loving the Lord with all of his heart, all of his soul, all of his mind. And all of his strength and absolutely everything he does in absolutely every relationship with believers, with unbelievers. This is his priority and he has an orderly life under this. Next, it says a lover of strangers. This is most often translated with the word hospitality. Now, often when we think of hospitality, we're like, well, someone who opens their house, has their friends over. But actually, that's not what this word means at all. Matter of fact, if you look in the scriptures, the Pharisees were always having people over their homes. They even had the Lord Jesus over their houses often. So you say, oh, they were showing hospitality. No, actually... The word here, it means a lover of strangers. So this man who is to be an elder, who is to be the example for all of us to follow, this man is to have a manifest love for strangers. You think of our Lord Jesus Christ. Strangers coming up to him. Have mercy on me. I want my sight. I'm a leper. So on and so forth. My daughter's dying. At the point of death, complete strangers, but total love. I think of the rich young ruler in the Gospel of Mark. It, it adds these words when he was like, yeah, I've done that, I've done that, I've done that. It says Jesus looked at him, loved him. This complete stranger runs up. How can I be saved? How can I have eternal life? Jesus loves him. But Jesus, you don't know, Jesus loved him. And this is what the church leader should be. And this is what each of one of us is to be and to grow in this. It says he's to be skilled in teaching. Now, this is the only, it does have a moral aspect to it, but the only non-moral, I guess you can say, uh, requirement here. So the one who is an elder, the one who is a pastor, is to be skilled in teaching because that's his whole duty. You know, in the Gospels, we read Jesus went out, he sees the people, they're like sheep without a shepherd. And it says he teaches them. It's like that's what they need. For the pastor, for the elder, for the church leader, he is to be skilled in teaching. Because it's the teaching that we live off of, that we grow off of. The pastor is called a shepherd. Okay, the shepherd must know how to feed his sheep. He must know what they need, what their diet is, what might harm them. He must guard them from the wrong thing. And so the man of God who stands to shepherd the flock of God must be skilled in his teaching. He says, 
the the next one I put not known to be alongside alcohol. Many translations say not a drunkard or not given to wine. Well, this word here in the Greek, you know, isn't just speaking of being drunk. I mean, that is a disqualification for even a church member and put him under discipline. So the man of God who leads the church is to be one who does not have a reputation of constantly just being around alcohol everywhere he goes. Now, that's, that's not saying you can't have a drink. That's not saying that if anyone drinks, you can't be their friend. No. I mean, even Jesus was accused of being a wine bibber. He was accused of being a drunk. Okay, so that is not what this is saying. But this is saying this man, okay, his, in his general life is to be one who is not characterized by someone who's always at the bar. Someone who's always around alcohol. Why? You know, he may go there. He may share the gospel. So why does he say this? Well, for this one reason. I'll just use this as example. So what happens if John MacArthur is found in a bar? That's going to blow up. There's going to be all types of this and that said about him. It's going to ruin his testimony. And the Lord wants the leader of the church, especially, to hold up a testimony that would be a credible testimony and not give the enemies of the Lord an occasion to blaspheme and speak reproachfully against him or against God. And in the same way, each and every one of us, though, you may not be a leader. We have a responsibility. We have a testimony. We aren't out there. I don't care about my own name. You should not care about your own name, but you should care about his name. Amen. So next, he says not violent. This word literally means not a striker. Okay, and it's not just physically, because as we define this word, it speaks of being contentious, quarrelsome, argumentative. So this isn't just physically. This is even with your tongue. Are you violent in your speech? You try to hurt others. In the Psalms, David says, they shot at me with their arrows. They were bitter wars. So how do we speak to one another? Yes, physical violence definitely is ruled out. But every other violence, do you seek to tear down people with your words? The man of God who leads the church must not have a tongue that is brutal, that is mean, that is insensitive, that is harsh. And so should all of us. Next he says, this man is to be fair-minded often translated gentle. What this word means, it definitely does mean gentle, but it is so much bigger than that. This word is used in Philippians, where there's two that are arguing in the church. One's named Yodia, one's named Syntyche. Paul's like, hey, they need to agree in the Lord. And he calls upon a man in the church. 
And he tells the whole church, bringing them all into this situation, and says, let your, and this word comes, gentleness, or let your equity, or let your, I think the best translation is fair-mindedness, be shown to all men. So the fair-minded person is the one who is just, yet in a gentle way, who is reasonable. He's willing to yield. He's humble. And this is what is required of the elders. Next, peaceable. This kind of goes hand in hand. This word literally means not quarrelsome or not argumentative. You know, often in uh, theological debates or whatever, it, it, now, don't get me wrong, no, it's good to go in and, you know, say, okay, what does this mean? I'm seeing it this way, you're seeing it that way, let's try to, because in reality, all of us need that iron sharpens iron. None of us have a perfect understanding of the scriptures. However, this man and all of us must not be someone always going out to quarrel. It, it doesn't matter if it's about the nature of God, the sovereignty of God. He isn't always going out to start a fight, quarrel with someone, just wanting to win an argument. Okay? But as Paul says, that the servant of the Lord must not be quarrelsome. He must be gentle, patient, able to teach, with humility instructing those who are in opposition. And this is the type of man that should lead the church says not a lover of money. This word is actually only used one other time in scripture in Hebrews chapter 13. Okay, verse 5. It says, let your conduct be free from covetousness or the love of money, this word. But be content with what you have. For we know him who said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So this word means someone who is not just in love with money, getting this and that in materialism, but someone who is content with what they have. Why? Because they know him who will never leave them and never forsake them. They're, that man is content in God. And as Paul says, I can be content because I have Christ. This man has God. He has Christ. He is content. As Paul says, if he has food and clothing, he can be content because he has God. He has Christ. He doesn't need anything more. I mean, he has a perfect master who provides. As I mentioned, seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He will be provided for. He's, he's the one who prays, Lord, don't give me too much that I become full and deny you. Don't give me too little that I still and profane the name of my God. Feed me with my portion. He is content with what he receives from the Lord. And the leader, the pastor, as an example, should be this. And all of us should be striving for that contentment as well. Next, says, one who stands before his own house well with his children in submission with all gravity. But if one does not know how to stand before his own house, how will he care for the house? of God. 
Many of your translations use the word rule or manage when it speaks of him before his house. This word comes from a compound word. One means before and the other half means to stand. Literally to stand before. As an example. To stand before the family. To lead the family. If he's standing before, the family follows him. One who can stand before the family with a godly example that his family can look to and model and even his children as they look to their father. That they are compelled to submit themselves. This word submit is actually a military term to rank yourself under one because of the character of this man who stands before his children. His children and I think included even his wife, that they are compelled to line themselves up and follow him. They can trust him. They see his consistency, no hypocrisy. They see a godly example. And this word, when he says, if he doesn't know how to stand before his own house, how will he care for the house of God? This word care is actually used only two other times in the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's a word speaking of great compassion, great mercy. So this man stands before his family as a compassionate man, as a merciful man. And that compels his family to come into line under him. You know, wives are told to submit to their husbands. But this kind of husband is one which a godly woman wants to submit to, wants to follow, and the children should as well. Next we read here that he should not be a new convert, that he should not become prideful and fall into the judgment of the devil. So is this saying that we have to say, okay, when did you get converted? Um, well, hadn't been enough time for you. Because you're technically a new convert until you hit 10 years. Are we to say that? Well, what is this saying? Well, this word uh, for novice, as many translations say, or new convert, is actually used three times, two of them, it's used in the parable of the uh, soils. The two soils, one on the rocky soil, which sprung up and it got burnt. The other on the thorny soil sprung up and got choked out by the weeds. So this is what it's speaking of. And in context, we see why. So we shouldn't become prideful and fall into the judgment of the devil. So, how long this person has been a Christian isn't necessarily what's at stake. But he has to have some amount of time as a Christian where he can be examined for his humility. That's what this is speaking of. So, the leader of the church should lead as Christ did and said, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom. For many. And that's the type of man who should lead the church. And that's the type of man, the type of woman, the type of child that all of us must become.
someone who is humble. You say, what is this same condemnation of the devil? What does that mean? Well, Isaiah tells us what happened to Satan. Same was in heaven. Ezekiel tells us he was the anointed cherub, possibly the highest being in heaven. But that wasn't enough. He said, no. I, must, I have to become like God. I'm going to raise myself above all the stars of heaven, all the angels of heaven, all the beings. He's already there, but he's like, no. I need more. I'm not content with God. I'm not content with where you have placed me because you're still above me. And he said, I will. I will. I will. I will. I will. And God said, no, you won't. Amen. And cast him down to hell. And it says, hell from beneath is excited for your coming. So the man who leads the church must be a man who is humble. Then it says that he must have a good testimony from those outside so that he might not fall into disgrace in the snare of the devil. So what does this mean? I mean, are we to worry about what unbelievers think about us? Yes, we are. Because again, as I said before, our testimony is at stake. Okay, and not just simply my testimony, your testimony, but your testimony, my testimony is only important because it's the testimony of God. You know, back in uh, 2 Samuel, you know, after David, Nathan confronts him for a sin. He said, oh, because you've done this, this is going to happen. The sword's not departing from your house. You did this in secret. God's going to do it in public. The worst judgment that came to him. He said, because you have given occasion for the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child you will have will die. So the most serious part of what David did was not that he committed adultery, not that he committed murder, not that he was a hypocrite before all Israel, not that he broke every single one of the commandments for however long, probably a year since she had the child. But the most serious part was that the enemies of the Lord can look at him, huh, I thought you were the chosen people of God, and the king at that. Is this, this your God? What is this? And that was the worst thing he did. And same with each one of us. All of us, we bear the name of God. All of us who are saved. All of us who have forsaken all to take hold of his gift, the Lord Jesus Christ. We bear the name of God. And we must represent God as ambassadors, which we are called at least twice in the New Testament. We must bear that name before this unbelieving world. You say, well, I don't care what they think about me. I care what God thinks about me. Well, God cares what they think about you. And we should as well. And he says, so he might not fall into disgrace in the snare of the devil. In other words, 
the devil, what he loves to do? He loves to give the world something to say against the people of God. Like, yeah, see, I told you, everyone, that's just all hypocrites. Don't, don't go to church. Why do you want to be with those people? Why do you even want to believe in Jesus? I mean, he claims to have all this power, claims to dwell in his people, work in them, to will and to do for his good pleasure. Look at them. They're no better than you. You don't need Jesus. It's nothing saving but love more than for the man of God, the pastor of the church, to fall into disgrace because he knows if he can get that man, as it is said in Scripture, first referring to Jesus Christ, but also to every shepherd after him. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. It's like if I'm going to take out the church, I'm going after that man. Therefore, the elder, the man of God, must seek not only to have a good testimony before the church, but before the world as well. You say, well, Jesus says the world will hate us. Yes, he does. But speaking of Jesus, yes, the Pharisees, they hated Jesus. But in Mark chapter 7, we, we read a statement from the general consensus of the people. And it says, he does all things well. He had a good testimony before outsiders. So now we say, okay, this is what... A blameless man looks like. A one-woman man, sober, self-controlled, orderly, a lover of strangers, skilled in teaching, not known to be alongside alcohol, not violent, fair-minded, peaceable, not a lover of money, one who stands before his own house well. He's not a new convert that he becomes prideful. He has a good testimony among those who are outside. This is a blameless man. But is that possible? Well, I, I just want to read to you from the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 6, this is what we all know is Daniel and the lion's den. So what was Daniel's testimony before outsiders? What was Daniel's character like? Daniel chapter 6, starting in verse 1. It says, it pleased Darius, to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom. And over these three governors, of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account to them, so that the king would suffer no loss. Just a note, notice, Daniel did not have a religious job. So any of you out there who are like, man, I need, to, I need to get a job in the church or, I mean, that, that's what the Lord wants. No, no, no. The Lord has put you where you are and you are to be faithful there. Let's keep going. Verse, th uh, verse 3, Then Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him and the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. 
So the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault found in him. This is a blameless man. And this is what each and every one of us are supposed to be. We're supposed to have leaders, have elders that we can look to. This is why it's so important for the church to support their pastor, their elders, their leaders, because what that does is it frees them up and they can live out their lives before the people and the people can have an example. You know, we often think of, yeah, we got to pay the pastor to support him. No, actually, you're doing that for your own benefit. But anyway, this man is supposed to be someone you can imitate. As I close, I want to turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13, verse 7 and 8. This speaks of how we should respond to our elder, to our pastor. I mean, should we say, well, you're held to this standard. You better stay up there. I'm just going to keep living my way, and I'm going to be looking at you, and when you mess up, I'm going to come after you. Is that to be our attitude? Hebrews 13 Verse 7, remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. We are to look at that man. We are to see the outcome of his conduct. And we are to follow his faith. You're like, how do, how do I follow faith? I can't see faith. Well, faith bears fruits. When you see the fruits of what that produces, as you see here, his conduct, what it produces, you should say, what is he doing that I'm not doing? Maybe he's saturating himself in the word of God, and I am not. Maybe he's praying when I am not. Why don't I look like that? Okay, let me follow his faith, seeing the outcome of his conduct. Nevertheless, if you examine that man closely enough, of course you will find sin. So, is there a model for us who is sinless? Look at the next verse, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You're like, what's the connection between 7 and 8? It's saying, okay, it's saying, okay, follow their faith. You see the outcome of their conduct? And then Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Is, I mean, the writer of Hebrews just inserting this about Jesus in the middle of talking about elders and we should follow them? Not at all. He's telling us, yeah, you follow that man. 
But where that man falls short, you have an example to follow. And he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The man who was committed to being a one-woman man, as he said, from the beginning, it was not so. He said he committed, he made them male and female. What God has put together, let not man separate. The man who was sober in his thinking, uninfluenced by this world, uninfluenced by the crowds. He had 5,000 families following him at one point after he fed them. So he's going to go start a mega church, right? No. He preaches one sermon, they're all gone, turns to his disciples, y'all want to go away too? <laughs> Uninfluenced by man. Okay, he had the most orderly life prioritizing God. Read the Gospel of John. I have come not to do my will, the will of him who sent me. The Son of Man does nothing of himself. What he hears, he judges according to the Father's will. I do nothing of myself. Whatever I see the Father do, whatever he does, I do in like manner. Constantly. I do whatever pleases my Father. He even said this at one time, which one of you convinced me of sin? This is our Lord was the same yesterday and today and forever who is the truly blameless one and it's because of his blamelessness that any of us can have a standing before God because if Jesus Christ was not blameless he did not meet God's requirement God's requirement let's just take the, the first the greatest commandment love the Lord your God Absolutely every part of you is committed to loving him absolutely perfectly. At all times, without fail, doesn't matter what they do to you, Jesus Christ fulfilled that. And it's because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ that we can have a standing before God and if you have not come to Christ, I don't care how moral you are. You can look at this list and you can keep it better than any of us. Just like Paul. And say, oh, well, concerning righteousness by the law, I'm blameless. And go to hell being blameless. Because it's not good enough. Our righteousness is filthy rags. Yes, we are required to be blameless. But that blamelessness on our part isn't going to get us into heaven. It's the blamelessness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you have not come to him this morning, the Bible commands you to repent, to turn from yourself, to turn from your sin. Jesus says, if anyone will come after me, if, in other words, if anyone wants to be a Christian, he doesn't say come to the front of a church. It doesn't say, say a prayer. It says, deny yourself. Take up your cross. Yeah, it's going to mean suffering. Maybe death. And follow me. It says, you seek 
to find your life in this world. You seek to save your life. You want to live for yourself? You'll lose it. But if you lose your life, you're like, I don't matter. I'm living for Christ. He says, that's the one who will keep his life eternally. Come to Christ this morning. The only way you can have a standing before the Holy God is through Christ. And those of us who have come to Christ, let us rejoice that we have a standing before God, which does not change. I mean, it's almost unspeakable to think that David, when he was in bed with Bathsheba, still maintained that righteous, blameless standing before God. Yes, he had to repent, and we must repent of our sins. Yes, he was required to be blameless. Yes, he was chastised, uh, disciplined severely by God. Nevertheless, that standing did not change. That's why he's the one who wrote, Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. And he'll cover, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute sin. He's like, I've done the two things that are deserving of instant death. And yet Nathan can say, your sins have been forgiven. It's because of the righteousness of Christ. So let us rejoice in that righteousness. And let us seek our Lord, just like Paul prayed, to be strengthened with might of the inner man by the Holy Spirit. That we can be blameless. Like I said, believe that. And according to our faith. Might it be done for us. Father God. I thank you Lord. For your word. Yes it does set before us a requirement with which is impossible. But as you said to the disciples. After the rich young ruler. Turned away you said. What is impossible with man is possible with God. Father, we believe this is possible by your Holy Spirit. I pray that you will work it in all of us, and especially our elders, Jeff and Sean, that they might continually be this example for us to follow. I thank you, Lord, for giving us elders that are blameless men. I pray that they would increase in their blamelessness, blame, blamelessness before you, O oh God, and that all of us, just like Daniel, in whatever field we are in, we would seek to be blameless, so blameless that even our enemies can't find anything against us. Unless it's concerning the law of our God. Thank you for helping me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.